Welcome to Origin Gates Daily Podcast called Wisdom's Echo. I'm Samantha Mahoney and today I'm doing part seven of generational inheritance. We continue having a look at Genesis 5 today. Genesis 5 is about the genealogy of Adam. It's about his family line. When you read through all of these names, perhaps it just flies over your head. You don't see the relevance. It seems like they're randomly put together in this chapter. What's it all about? We can learn some very interesting things by studying this genealogy. We see that Adam has a son in his likeness, or you might see the words Adam begot Seth. So he has a son in his likeness. Adam has Seth. Seth has Enosh. Enosh has Kenan. Kenan has Mahalalel. Mahalalel has Jared. Jared has Enoch. Enoch has Methuselah. Methuselah has Lamech, and this is not to be confused with the same Lamech that killed Cain in one of our previous readings. And finally, Lamech has Noah. There are 10 generations right there. These are the fathers of mankind. Although they are not your biological father, we are all connected by DNA through our human race. And the word refers to them as fathers. I'll show you this as we get to the next chapter of Genesis. But let's just have a look at this right now. What is the significance of the names of all of these people in Adam's bloodline? When you have a look at the Hebrew understanding, we see that a parent named their child according to their life experience. Today we have children and we name them all sorts of things that might have no bearing, but actually the name is so important because it prophesies over that child what is going to come into his future, his or her future. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. In Genesis 41, we see that Joseph, he's now in position where he has a world platform. He has um, seen the famine coming and he has created something, storehouses to cater for that famine. We see in chapter 50, it says, before the years of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, and he said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. This is a pretty good summary of Joseph's life. He had been through a situation where his brothers had sold him out. They had betrayed him. And despite all of that and all that he went through, he was first a slave and then he was a prisoner. And through all that, he came out being second in charge to Pharaoh in Egypt. So the naming of his son, it is credible. It, it, it shows the story of his life because it says, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Pretty good summary. Verse 52 says, the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Pretty good summaries of his life. So what does Seth and Enosh and Kenan mean? It's very important that we honor the fathers and their legacy and the story they have left. You too will be known as a father into your future generations. What are we leaving behind for them to pick up? What doors are we opening? I mean, the word talks about 
because of your love for Yahweh, he leaves a thousand generation blessing on your future generations. It also says he curses to the third and to the fourth generation. So you can see that God thinks generationally. I want to talk a little bit about honoring the fathers because these fathers have have some sort of a story that they're imparting to us. And if we do not honor, we cannot receive what they have to say. So Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 8, you can read it. I'm just going to read verse 1 and 2. It says, In many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in different ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers, in and by the prophets. Verse 2 says, but in the last of these days, he has spoken to us in the person of a son who he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things. We see from this that we all have a piece of the revelation. We haven't all been given the whole picture. We don't have all of the answers. We've each person has a piece that if they don't pass on generationally, that generation suffers because of it. That's why we need each other. God put fathers in place to tell the revelation of God, of who God is in their life to their children. Before we get to the glory of God, we have to have heard from the fathers who have portions of the truth. Now, if we go, well, that's so Old Testament and that's not for today, you're going to miss the revelation completely. Let me read Psalm 78 to you. Verse 1, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. In instruction by numerous examples, I will utter dark sayings of old that hide important truth, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell to the generations to come the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonderful works that he has performed. So can you see as a father, they have a job to tell the generations to come about the Lord, to, to set up a monument of record of the good things that Yahweh has done. Verse 5 says, For he established a testimony, an express precept in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, commanding our fathers that they should make the great facts of God's dealings with Israel known to their children. This is part of what a father does, as he passes on that knowledge and his legacy and his story to his children, not so that his children can stay in the same place and repeat the pattern and cycle, but it builds a platform of or a foundation upon which those children build something. Verse 6 says that the generation to come might know them, that the children still to be born might arise and recount them to their children. Can you see their generations? Four generations are mentioned just in this one passage. Verse 7 says that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but might keep his commandments. This is showing you that what you do affects your generations and the future. We either affect the next three to four generations negatively or positively, but you are here to leave a legacy because you've inherited a legacy. Verse 8 says, And might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their hearts aright, nor prepared their hearts to know God, and whose spirits were not satisfied and faithful to God. I want to read one more um, passage in Psalm 71, verse 17 and 18. 
O God, you have taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared your wondrous works. Verse 18. Yes, even when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, but keep me alive until I have declared your mighty strength to this generation and your might and power to all that are to come. Do you see how we have a job to do with generations? If we don't honor our fathers, we get nothing from them. This is the same in circles where there are anointed men and women of God who speak a message. If you do not honor what they carry and the vessel of who they are and what they're imparting, you cannot receive from them. We see how honor even prevented Jesus, the son of God, from doing anything in Nazareth because he wasn't honored in his hometown. The word says he did a few things, a few miracles here and there, but he was not honored. And so he did things outside of his town. When we dishonor, it's a stink to God's nostrils. It all starts with honoring our elders. When we look at youth of today, I mean, okay, sure, there are certain pockets that this does not apply to. But in general, you see how the youth relate to the elderly and you see that there's a big gap in this honor. We can see from the word that God plans generationally and the word is carried from one generation to the other. When you think about when Jesus was born, why was he born when he was born? It was because it was deliberate. It was specific. A certain amount of generations had to go by before Jesus was born because they had to prepare a platform for him. There's an advancement between fathers and sons. For instance, if we had an interview with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their stories would be very different. But see how they build on the last one's story. So if we were to interview Abraham and we said, okay, Abraham, tell me the story of your life. Tell me what impacted you the most in your journey. Abraham would probably say, well, it all started when I received the word from God to pack up and to go. Just go wherever he said. So he leaves his wealth and his family home and his father's house and he wanders around, but he's not exactly sure where he's going. I don't know if any of you have ever said to your parents, this is a true story, been there, done that. I'm leaving the country and I'm just going to another country. And they go, well, what are you going to do there? I don't know. Well, do you have a job there? No, not yet. I'll find one when I get there. Well, what about your children? Yeah, what about my children? They're coming. Yeah, but they're small. You need stability. And so you have this back and forth with with loving parents who have your best interest at heart. But when you don't really know where you're going, but you know that you're going, it's a massive story that gets added to your life. So Abraham lives in tents and he wanders from place to place wherever God tells him to go. So that might be Abraham's part of his journey with God. If you had to interview his son, Isaac, and you go, man, that living in tents must have been hard work for you. And Isaac goes, living in tents, that's that's pretty normal for me. No, I've done it since I was born. No, I'm used to wandering from place to place, not knowing where we're going. No, that's not my story. But if you want to know anything about worship, I'm your man. You know that my first exposure to worship was being taken up a mountain to be offered as a sacrifice by my father. It was there on my back looking up that I have my first revelation who God is staring at my father's knife in his hand. 
So it would probably be Isaac's story. So Abraham's big deal in his life becomes a floor or a platform that Isaac begins to build on. It's a different story, but you can't discount where he is right now because Abraham set the platform. If you were to then interview Jacob and say, oh, Jacob, okay, so, so, so what's your, what's your deal? Is it the tent or is it the knife? And Jacob goes, no, that's the old move. No, no, no. Let me tell you the story of my life. I paid for two women for 14 years. I wrestled with God. I had a name change. I have a permanent limp in my hip because I wrestled with an angel. That's my story. They have totally different stories, but you build one on the other. We cannot stay in a pattern of our forefathers and live in their story because God is constantly building all the time. The word says, you know, from glory to glory, we we move and build line upon line, precept upon precept. We honor what has gone on in the past, but we cannot live there because we have our own story that we have to live out. So coming back to the genealogy in Genesis 5, we see genealogy as well mentioned in Matthew 1 as well as in Luke 3. But this is Genesis 5 and we're looking at Adam. So what do the names of these children mean? If we don't honor, we're going to miss it completely. So let me just, let me just um, tell you what the names mean. Adam means man or human. Seth means is appointed or established to do something. Enosh means a mortal man or you have a mortal life. Kenan means sorrow is born. So it's the travail and the suffering that push you through. Mahalalel means the glory of God. Jared means shall come down. I wonder where that came from. I wonder what happened in the previous generation that that's what his name means, shall come down. Enoch means instructing that. We need instruction because we've never seen the glory before. So we need to have instruction on how to walk in the protocols. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means those in despair or those interceding and calling out. Noah means comfort and rest. Now I'm going to tie this all up nicely for you and put a bow on it. When you have a look at the names and well, the meanings of the names, without looking at the names, hear the story in the first 10 generations from Adam to Noah. I am just reading the meanings of their names. It means man is appointed, a mortal man, sorrow is born, the glory of God shall come down, instructing that his death shall bring those in despair Comfort and rest. How is that? Wow. No honor. You don't get the story that comes out of it. We have to honor them so we can hear the message. <coughs> Excuse me. So we can't just chuck away the Old Testament and go, well, that doesn't apply to today. We have to accept the whole of the word. We have to get all of the revelation that comes from the word of God. So let me look at Genesis 6 now. And I'm just going to throw this out there. This is for you to think about and to investigate if you want to. I'm not going there right now. This is probably a whole series on its own. Verse Chapter 6 verse 1 says, 
When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of human and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Did you hear the four different, let's just call them species for lack of a better word. Did you hear the four species that are being referred to in those four verses? Let me just go through them with you. When humans began to increase in number on the earth. So we have humans. Verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. So we have humans and we have sons of God. Then we have verse 4. It just briefly mentions them. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So we have humans, sons of God, Nephilim. And then we come back to the sons of God who went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And they were heroes of old or men of renown. So there's the fourth class. So what's that all about? Interesting. You go and check it out and we might actually cover that in another series. But I want to carry on with bloodlines now. So I'm going to continue reading from verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So from that we see that the wickedness of man had grown so great. I mean, we're, we're ten generations from Adam. That's all. Ten generations from Adam. And look at the wickedness that is in the heart of man. And it says all the time. It says that they, they couldn't even think on anything other than evil. So what made it so wicked? We see that violence filled the whole earth. I'm going to read to you from the Torah right now regarding what that actually looked like. It says, The behavior of the people deteriorated. At first they were corrupt, being guilty of immorality and idolatry, and they sinned covertly before God. Later, the earth had become filled with robbery, which was obvious to all. Then the entire earth was corrupted because man is the essence of the world and his corruption infects all of creation. That comes from the Zohar. That's what I'm talking about. We are made with all of creation in us and when we sin, it affects creation. But likewise, when we repent, it heals it. I'll continue reading from the Torah. Such is the progression of sin. It begins in private when people still have a sense of right and wrong. But once people develop the habit of sinning, they gradually lose their shame. And immoral behavior becomes the accepted, even the required norm. In Noah's time, the immoral sexual conduct of the people extended to animals as well until they too cohabited with, with the species. 
The Midrash teaches that they stole from one another in petty ways that were not subject to the authority of the courts. Though this is not the gravest kind of sin, it is morally damaging in the extreme because thievery within the letter of the law weakens the conscience and corrupts the social fabric. So that's just very interesting um, commentary from the Torah. And I'll just continue reading in Genesis now. The Lord says, I will wipe man from the face of the earth, every human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move on the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Whenever you see a but in the sentence, it just cancels out everything that was previously said. We know how this works. If a young man asks a woman, a young lady to marry him and she goes, well, you're such an awesome guy and you have such a lovely heart and you're going to be a good provider and a good father. But that but cancels out everything she just said. And so, okay, we see that Noah is the but in this situation in the eyes of the Lord, which turns his heart for destroying absolutely everything. Um, Noah, this is the account of him and his family. He was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, the, so the 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God says to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going to destroy them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood and make rooms in it. And he goes on to say what the ark is going to look like. I'm just going to skip through Genesis 7 and 8, just touching on a few things. We have this um, idea and it's it's from what we've been taught from Sunday school that Noah took with him two pairs of everything. That is partly true, but not the full story. If you have a look in Genesis six and we look at verse 25, it says you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, two of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves on the ground and they will come to you to be kept alive. So we go, okay, so the animals came two by two into the ark, the end of the story. But actually there's more to it. We don't take into account the whole story. When we're reading the word, nothing is random. Nothing is there just by accident or by chance. There's, there's something to everything in the word. If we look at verse, sorry, chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So you see there's so much more. We also go, well, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and Noah was in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. That's not true either. Sure, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but we need to read the word properly. I'll just touch on a few things in Genesis 7 verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, listen to the date, on the 17th day of the second 
month. Okay, so that's the second month, right? Verse 12 says, rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So that's correct. But um, just go down to verse 24. It says, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. When you have a look at the total amount of time that Noah spent in the ark, it's just over a year. Let me show you that. Um, Genesis 8 verse 14. It says, by the 27th day of the second month. When did they get on the ark? 17th day of the second month. And here we are, 27th day of the second month. There's a year right there. A little bit further down, it talks about when he actually came out of that ark, which was the 27th day of the second month. So we read our Bible and bits that we don't understand or even things that have been handed down to us from childhood. When we went to Sunday school and they taught us Mr. Noah built an ark, the people thought it's such a laugh. Mr. Noah pleaded so, but into the ark they would not go. And then it talks they came by two by two. That's where we stay. We have to start getting the truth of the word in some of these areas. So let me just have a look now at verse 20 of chapter 8. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. So here we see the word altar and we see a sacrifice was made on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and in his heart he said, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So I want you to notice about Noah in a previous chapter, verse, sorry, chapter six. It says Noah was found righteous among all of his generations. When you have a look at uh, his wife's family line, generational line, she came from Cain. What happened in Cain's days? There was idolatry. There was murder. Okay, those were doors that were open. So that continued. We even see the Lord saying, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So even though that the, even though the earth was reset, there was still that thing in the heart of man which always leaned towards evil. Why? Because we are connected by DNA. The memories of our forefathers or our fathers are in us somewhere and they play out they, they continue patterns and cycles that repeat over and over until we deal with it. I want to remind you of what Yahweh said when Adam sinned. It says his voice, they heard his voice walking in the garden and God said, where are you? That was an opportunity to take ownership, to take responsibility and to repent and they failed to do it. I remind you of Cain, when Cain killed Abel. God's asking him, where are you? That's not to say, I don't know where you are, I can't find you. It's to say, what have you done? Talk to me, own it, repent, take responsibility, and he refused to. So that door was open to another generation. We will continue to see patterns and cycles play out in our bloodlines until somebody takes ownership and says we're guilty we repent would you close the door that's open in our lives to allow all of this stuff in i'm going to end on this 
verse 22 of chapter 8 in Genesis says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. These are patterns. Patterns that are going to be in place as long as the earth endures. That's what the word says. These patterns in our own lives are going to play out over and over in one generation to the next until we start to take ownership of it. I so appreciate your time today. Thank you for listening in to Wisdom's Echo. Have a good one.